on this episode of AvTalk, an Air India Express 737 clips a brick wall. Cobalt Airlines becomes the second airline this month to cease operations. And fresh off the relaunched world's longest flight, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren joins us once again to fill us in on the journey. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. Hello, Jason. How are you today? I am well. This is very cordial. (laughs) Indeed. Yes. Indeed. How's your packing going? Because you're leaving soon, aren't you? Yeah, I've definitely started packing already. Yep. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. When do you leave? Saturday morning. Okay. Well, it's only – we're recording on Wednesday, so you've got plenty of time. Yeah, I'm going to do laundry Friday morning, pack panicking on like Friday night. I'll figure it out. It'll happen. But you're not leaving till Saturday, so there should be no panicking in your Friday packing. Yeah, you'd be surprised. Eh, Fair enough. I've packed on the way to the airport. That's true. Well, I do have to leave Friday night to go out to uh, my parents' place because I'm staying with them overnight since the flight is like 7.45 at a JFK and I'd have to leave here at like basically Friday night anyway to get to JFK. That's a fair point. We should probably talk about where you're going. Oh, yeah. I'm going to South Africa. So, not Atlanta. Not Atlanta. Not this time, but I'm going uh, going to Johannesburg and then Cape Town with my parents, actually, and we're going to do a couple of safaris. So, very unusual. I can't remember the last time I've traveled with my parents, but it should be fun if we don't try to kill each other. We're flying BA economy through Heathrow, so we're taking the, I guess, kind of long way, but we're going to make the rare morning flight to Heathrow and then connection there down to South Africa in the same day. So, that's pretty cool. So, it's like, what, 25 hours? It's something like that. But it's the quickest way to do it that isn't the nonstop SAA flights. Very few US cities have the opportunity to fly to London early in the morning and be able to make a connection there that same day, thankfully. New York, I guess, is one of those cities. New York, Boston, I think there might be a Philly flight with American maybe, but it's a pretty cool option. Everyone else, if you fly through Europe. There's one that leaves pretty early in the morning from Chicago, but I don't know if it's early enough to connect. To make the bank connections, yeah. But every other option through Europe, there's like an 8 to 15 hour connection since you arrive early in the morning. And the flights down to Joburg don't leave until like nine, eight, nine o'clock. So you've got a nasty long connection time. And then you're from 24 hours, you go up to, you know, 36, 37 hours, and that's less fun. Right. And we'll be flying an intra South Africa flight, obviously, from Joburg down to Cape Town on Mango, which should be interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing about, I mean, because you can find no shortage of opinions on, on BA's product. But I'm looking forward to hearing your your opinion on Mango. Yes. Well, it's not technically BA. I, get, I mean, kind of, sort of. It's not the Comair operation, but I guess the subcarrier of Comair, which operates for British Airways. So, it's a little confusing. Huh. Yeah. Either way, looking forward to your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, how long are you gone? What's going on here? About two weeks. Okay. So, we may have a guest host on the next episode, depending on whether or not we lose Jason to South Africa somewhere. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going to correct myself already. It's not Mango that's the sub-operator of Comair. It's uh, Kalula or whatever it is. So, it's- The folks with the- BA and then Comair operating for BA and then Kalula operating as Comair for British Airways. So, Mango is a whole other thing. 
And when we figure out all of that, we'll get back. Once I figure out what airline I'm actually flying, I'll let you know. You might want to check that. Yeah. Yes. All right. So speaking of British Airways, today is the 24th of October, and it marks the 15th anniversary of the last commercial flight of the Concorde. Sad panda. Yeah. That's sad. I mean, yeah. I have nothing else to add to that. It's sad. Excellent discussion here. Moving right along. Yeah. Go find your nearest Concorde at a museum or if you're Heathrow rotting away next to a maintenance terminal or, or wherever and go go check it out and tour it. It's good that you know all of those have been preserved very well and, and kept up in such good condition like the- I- do I hear sarcasm? You might, yes. I might hear a little sarcasm, there, yeah. There might be a little there, but- Yeah, some of those are not preserved as well as we would like them to be, but at least there's a bunch of them out there. Uh, New York, the Intrepid has not treated theirs particularly well over the years. Heathrow basically lets it rot outside. You get to see it when your plane taxis by it on the way to the runway, which is nice. Yeah, there uh, you go. The one in Manchester actually is the best one I've been to. It's got its own building. They do tours. You even get a little certificate that you toured it, which is pretty oh, cool. Neat. Yeah. I just like the news reports that resurface every six months to a year where a group of investors are going to get the Concorde flying again. And Yeah, any minute now. Yeah. Good luck to them on this anniversary. It's definitely going to happen. It's ready to go. Yeah. Yep. Those Olympus engines are going to fire up any day now. <laughs> but it is interesting because last week, GE announced kind of the, their engine for the for the Ariane supersonic aircraft. So that, that, I mean, you know, kind of goes together somehow. I'm grasping it straws wildly here. Yeah, I mean, I've been extremely skeptical of the reboot of commercial supersonic flying. Like the whole boom supersonic thing, I don't buy into it. I don't think this is really a, a super legitimate business case for it, especially with fuel the way it is now. But if GE is throwing their weight behind developing an, an actual feasible engine, it's I have to take it a lot more seriously. Well, I mean, but this is for the the business jet version, right? It's something rather than nothing, though. It may not be commercial right. flights, but it's more than nothing, right? Right. So, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see how that that progresses, and if we actually do get to the point where where it starts to to happen, to see where that leads. But well, you know, in the meantime, we'll be sad about that. Let's talk about Air India, shall we? Sure. Air India is always an interesting topic. Air India Express, to be precise. They were departing a 737 from Tichapali, and they didn't depart as quickly as they should have. No. No, they didn't. They almost didn't depart at all. Clipped the ILS light tower at the departure end of the runway. Clipped a fence and brick wall at the departure end of the runway, separating the airport from a road. And they took a piece of that fence with them. Took a piece of the fence with them and then continued on. Departed- With a gigantic gash in the belly of the aircraft. Departed on their way to Dubai, flew clean across the Arabian Sea, and then at some point were informed that perhaps you should come back and diverted to Mumbai, landed safely- Landed and it was discovered that they had the piece of the fence with them and impact damage to various parts of the aircraft, including the underside of the fuselage and the horizontal stabilizer. Not great. It's another one of these things that inches away from potential catastrophic disaster, but thankfully luck 
prevailed and that did not happen. But yikes. I'm still amazed that they didn't know that they hit something. I guess if – I don't really know. I guess if there's – surely there was a vibration of some sort, but it would have been very quick. And if it didn't damage any systems on the aircraft, they, I guess they wouldn't have even gotten a notification. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that they didn't know they hit something. Yeah. I mean, it's happened before. Didn't Qatar 777 hit uh, some runway lighting in Miami and continued all the way on to Doha with a part of the light embedded in the aircraft and did not know. Sure, but that was just the lighting. And the lighting itself is designed, the, the ILS lighting itself is designed to be impacted and not damage the aircraft in a significant way. Brick walls, on the other hand, are not necessarily designed not to damage aircraft. No, those are just walls. <laughs> we don't know exactly how hard the wall was impacted versus the fencing on top of the wall, obviously, but I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. And the circumstances are also quite weird. If you look into the data, it seems like they were accelerating normally and then the speed just kind of plateaued. Yeah, it was departure was a very interesting event. So once again, we don't know what happened. Well, we know what happened. We don't know why it happened. And we won't know why it happened for, let's be honest, probably a full number of years before there's a full report issued. And we'll probably forget about it by then anyway. But if something in the near term comes up, we'll bring it to you. Yeah, absolutely. Should we talk about another mistake a little bit closer to home? Yes. Yes, we should. There were a couple dozen people that wanted to go from Chicago to Tennessee and didn't get that chance on a particular day. Well, they got it eventually. Well, they got there eventually. But it took them more than one flight to get to get from Chicago to Chattanooga because they had a plane that was too big. Yeah, this is a very strange one. So, uh, the United flight are operated by SkyWest from Chicago to Chattanooga is typically operated by a little 50-seat CRJ200. For whatever reason, on this particular day, the CRJ was subbed out to an Embraer E-175, which is 76 seats and just generally a much bigger, better, more comfortable aircraft. There was a last-minute substitution of aircraft. Right. We don't know why. That's not really important. What is important is they got as far as Evansville, Indiana, when they realized, oh, wait a minute, this plane is too big for Chattanooga. For whatever reason, um, maybe the taxiways aren't big enough, or they don't have a tow bar, or the jet bridge won't work. That ain't going to work. So they had to <laughs> turn back and go back to Chicago and find themselves a properly small little aircraft. Yeah, about 45 minutes into flight, they just sort of turned around. Yeah. And went back. I would love to be in, uh, I guess, SkyWest Dispatch or Operations and, and while someone figured out, oh, wait, that's not going to work. They have to turn around now. I, I can't recall of another situation where that has happened. I mean, I would just hate to be the pilots and the flight attendant on that flight because, you know, something so ridiculous and of no, you know, no control of your own. And like, no, we're, we're turning around now because the, the airport can't, not like the weather's bad or, you know, it just, the airport can't handle this plane. Okay. So uh, hopefully they won't be making that mistake again. I think they learned their lesson. Somebody put a post-it note next to their computer. No E-175s at Chattanooga. Yeah. The interest, I definitely want to look up why it's too large. Maybe you're, maybe you're right. Maybe it is something that's just as simple as not having a tow bar for it. I honestly don't know why, but it, it's good to know uh, that they figured it out before they got there. Yeah. I mean, I also don't understand that if it's too big, why not? Can't you just put it on a taxiway and bring up an air stairs and just 
I don't know. I do not know. It would have worked out if they landed there. It's not the end of the world, but it's just very funny that just that use the slides, happened. right? Just pop the slides, and passengers will get off that way. Don't do oh that. Oh boy! Oh boy! No, that you can only do that at JFK. Ouch! Cobalt went out of business this week. Rest in peace. The second airline this month to go out of business, and the, the second, you know, rather small airline to go out of business this month. They operated a a fleet of six. A320 family aircraft, two A319s, and four A320s. Yeah, and it's just another example of an airline that's uh, here in the morning and gone in the evening with virtually no notice. I think less than a few hours, they, you know, their last couple flights were ready to depart, and they said, "Well, we're we're done after." After these. Yeah. I talked to a few people on Twitter who were inbound on a flight from the UK and then they got to their transfer point and they were supposed to connect to Dubai or something like that and the airline was just gone. So, they were connecting and suddenly the airline didn't exist anymore, which is unfortunate. It's got to be such a a weird feeling. Yeah. That aircraft doesn't have Wi-Fi and you assume you, you get on the plane, you go, you land at your midpoint of your trip, everything is normal. And then you try to connect and they tell you, oh, the airline's out of business. But you're like, I, I just got off a flight five minutes ago. Oh, no, they're gone now. You were over, but over there. They're you, gone now. You got a plane. Yeah. So uh, you're out of luck. That's crazy. And, I mean, then like there's nothing. You, it's not like, it's not like, well, you knew getting on the plane that they were going to be out of business when you landed. No, it's you land and then all of a sudden there's no more airline. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's unfortunate to say the least. Wow. So the other thing that happened last week is the reinauguration, relaunch of the Singapore Airlines SQ twenty one and twenty two between Singapore and, and Newark. We've talked about this a bunch, and Jason has raised the point more than once that we really shouldn't talk about it much more. I'm already bored. And we're going to talk about it one more time, and we're going to bring Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who joined us last time because he joined you in London to talk about the, the 60th anniversary of transatlantic jet travel. He was on the inaugural flight from Newark to Singapore, and he's going to join us in just a moment to to talk a little bit about that flight, ultra long haul flights in general, and where we see the the airline industry moving as far as ultra long haul flights are the future of those flights, which for context, just today, Richard Branson made comments that Virgin Atlantic is exploring a London Perth flight to compete with Qantas. Do it. They're adding more. So we're going to take a quick break and come back with Jeremy and we'll talk a lot more about his travel on SQ21. Stay with us. And we are back again with Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who is fresh or not so fresh, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, off the inaugural New York to Singapore ultra long haul SQ21. Jeremy, welcome back to the program. It's been a very long time since we've spoken to you since last episode. We're going to have to issue him some sort of status, aren't we? Some like frequent recorder status. Well, we'll get him a gold piece of plastic or something oh, like he'll that. He'll get access to the lounge. Well, it's, he just keeps <laughs> doing cool stuff. So welcome back. And how do you feel? Hey, thanks for having me back again, guys. I'm feeling pretty okay. No complaints. You survived. So that's step one. Yeah. If we're going for bare minimum, then yes, I did survive. I enjoyed it too. <laughs> so we passed over the threshold. 
So we've got two checkboxes done. Let's go for a third. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Certainly in the sense of of an AvGeek thing, it it checked off a number of tick boxes. It checked off a world's longest flight, at least by distance. I can already hear the letters being written on time because the first SQ-21 was only 17 and a half hours instead of the 1845 it normally is. And I can hear the folks complaining that Perth, London that weekend might have run 15 minutes longer or something. But absolutely, to my first transpolar flight flying over Siberia, those are those are all things that are pretty phenomenally cool. You don't get the opportunity to do very often. So absolutely worth it on that alone. So walk us through, and, and I know this was an inaugural flight, so it was a, a bit special, but just kind of walk us through, you know, being on the plane for 17 and a half hours and what Singapore is doing on the aircraft to make it a, a little bit different than than what you'd see on some other ultra long haul flights. Sure. Well, I think the first noticeable difference is is just the amount of people that you're on board with. So a typical A350-900 has between 250 and 300 and change people, depending on the density. Singapore has gone with a very premium heavy option on the A350 ULR, ultra long range. And I think they seat 160, 161 total split between Singapore's very lavish business class and their more domestic first-ish product premium economy. That's the first obvious noticeable change that they've done differently, and that's a stark difference from the second and third place that for longest flights in the world, which also offer a regular economy class, which I know I sound super privileged in saying it, but hard pass. So that's the first obvious one. But beyond that... They've worked with something they call, not something, someone, uh, Canyon Ranch to roll out a series of wellness products on board the aircraft that are, are fairly unique to that flight. So their their menu is a bit more involved and has some healthier options than you might see on a traditional flight, which tends to be very rich, heavy meals that I think can wear on you pretty substantially over the course of a flight in, in either cabin as well as in the in-flight entertainment options, which carries 200 more hours content than normal, which is 1,000 for the record. Still something like 50 days straight, which is diehard even among the most diehard of us, if you wanted to actually pull that feet off. But they have a bunch of stretches that you can do, things that you could accomplish in your seat space, for example, that are, are kind of unique to that. I, I don't know that I've seen that elsewhere, but then again, I haven't done the... Doha, Auckland, or Perth, London flight. So I, I can't speak too well to those, but certainly seems a bit on the more unique side. So from what I saw, they try to make you adapt to Singapore time the second you take off from Newark, which is very much not Singapore. That No, it's that, Newark, and Newark is just Newark. Yeah, no, Newark is gross. But Newark So you gross. take off, and they try to immediately force you onto Singapore time. So even though you depart at like 10 a.m. or something, it's bedtime already. You basically have a meal, and it's time for bed. They turn off the lights, they turn them back on, they feed you, they turn them off again. Did it work? Did it help you, or do you feel like it was just trying to force a time zone on you when it just wasn't natural? That's a tough question for me to answer because... It wasn't a flight that I just sat back and enjoyed. 
I was working predominantly for USA Today as my main client. If you haven't seen the story, go look. Shameless plug. But a lot of that time was spent uh, making interviews, settling interviews in, making photos, and transcribing. So I wouldn't say that I set on the time frame necessarily that Singapore would have wanted to cultivate based on, I think, what they were after. I, I certainly know that the the Canyon Ranch people, have, <laughs> which sounds really dumb to say, but anyway, the folks who've kind of looked at some of the, the, the best way to conduct this flight had recommended your meal about an hour and a half in, which is when they started, and then fall asleep about an hour and a half later, which is about when they dim the lights. So they certainly made that attempt and that would have corresponded to a little after midnight Singapore time or maybe 1 a.m. Singapore time, which is, is not a bad adjustment time, all things considered. I think it's 12 time zones total, so at some point you only do what you can do. But I would say I have a hard time answering that question, honestly, because I was awake most of the flight working to make the article happen and get the interviews and and everything else. But th- they certainly worked on the time frame that they had talked about, which is have your meal fall asleep an hour and a half afterward and wake up somewhere around the 12 hour mark, have your second meal, catch a nap, watch a movie or two. And you land in Singapore around five 30 local time. We were a little bit ahead and closer to four 30, five o'clock, but they certainly scheduled the flight and moved a lot of the, the lighting and the service components around that for sure. So one of the other things that I've seen a few people mention who were on the flight was the lack of kind of communal space on a flight that long, whereas, you know, Qatar has their kind of congregation area behind the business class cabin and Emirates has something similar. There was nothing like that on the ULR. Did you find that you were lacking a place to kind of just go and, and stand up but be also be out of the way or, or talk to other people on a flight that long? That's a good question. I hadn't thought about that. I I would say that there was not the same level of communal space that I would expect to see on some other aircraft. I I do think that's aircraft specific, though, again, I I can't speak to Qatar or Emirates, but certainly it's not an A380. It's an A350. The aircraft is is dual aisle, single deck, and their galley, you know, it's, it's meant to optimize and maximize revenue for every inch of that aircraft on board. And certainly a bar on an A350 when you've already got a route that is barely running what I imagine is relatively thin margins, you're not really afforded the opportunity that you would typically have in an A380 on Emirates or Qatar to, to run a giant bar. That doesn't exist. And so certainly taking that time to stand around in the galley besides the usual hubbub of a lot of the interviews were in galleys which certainly makes it harder to feel like you're not in the way certainly that that didn't exist and i imagine even without that hubbub and hoopla it would still be tough to find that space because it definitely wasn't there in the way that it is in some of the larger aircraft that have typically dominated those top 10 though i would add that most of the aircraft now uh, that run the top 10 longest flights in the world are not the big quad jets anymore they're the twin aisle jets and i think that's the real revolution here that we're not really talking about and that tends to exist in more the the ostrowers and 
the uh, manufacturer-focused folks of the world, is this is a major revolution for single-engine. The first time in history that the majority of the top 10, if I'm remembering right, correct me if I'm wrong, are, are mostly twin-engine jets now. And so you don't have that gargantuan size of a 747 or A380. You've got the thin, elegant features of an A350 now. And, and that comes with the passenger experience too, which translates to things like the, the galleys aren't as big. Those communal spaces just don't exist like they do in the larger aircraft. And I think that's our future. I think the quad jets have certainly in sales alone have demonstrated that they are not the future. And with a rising oil price, we're just not going to see that, I think, going forward. Right. And I think that's something John Ostrow actually wrote about recently is how they cram all this stuff into the galleys and on mm-hmm. the single deck of the A350, like taking care of garbage. You have 18 hours in the air and hundreds of people, all that trash has got to go somewhere. And all the food for all the various courses for 18 hours has to be stored somewhere. There were two and a half tons alone of catering and catering equipment on board that aircraft. And obviously some of it's ingested, but that's ultimately ending up somewhere too. Honey bucket. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's a slightly more evolved honey bucket, but basically the same concept. But all of that weight wounds up getting shifted. None of it goes anywhere. It's not like they pump blue ice out the back of the airplane into the Arctic. At least God help us if they do. But and I know they don't. They don't, for anyone listening. They, they, they don't. They don't. We'll just make that super clear because I can hear the click-clack of the letters. But all of that weight continues to remain on board. It just shifts where it's stored. And certainly that's the challenge is they, they have to, and especially on a flight like this, they have to account for every inch, every pound, every ounce of space they're working to re- maximize the revenue potential, the earning potential of every inch on that airplane. It's something you have to think about so much more carefully. And Ostrower did write beautifully on if you're not a subscriber to Air Current, highly recommend you become one. He talked really well about how all of the work that has to go into that and the thought and care that goes into that that necessarily wouldn't necessarily go into an A380, for example. Now, did they have duty-free sales on board? Did they waste space with those products or did they give it up? If they did, I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't remember it. I know it was on the route back, but that was on an A380, which is a obviously a much larger aircraft. But I honestly, I don't know for sure. I don't remember it, put it that way, but I wasn't listening for it either. <laughs> To your point about the longest routes, I, I want to go back to that for a moment because it's a very interesting point that you make up. And of the the top 10 routes, which are flown by 11 different flights because Singapore and United both do uh, San Francisco, Singapore, only two are flown by quad jets. Yep. Both are A380s. The Dallas uh, Fort Worth, Sydney, and the Auckland Dubai flights are both A380s. The 747 does not fly any of the world's longest routes through the top 30. That's not surprising. They're, they're the 74400 is just simply not efficient anymore. There are so few Dash 8s out there. Yeah, so there you go. The A340-600 kicks in at number 26 with the Johannesburg, New York route. So there there you go. That's yeah, all triple seven LRs, seven eighty nines, and A three fifties, and you know, the two A three eighties. And some three hundred ERs mixed in there, just for good measure. That's true. So at the end of the flight, I know this wasn't a normal flight for you, but how are you feeling towards the end of it? Were you scratching at the windows to get out or were you were you dealing with it? Or what was the sense on board? 
for myself, I've done a handful, maybe four or five, uh, 15 hour plus flights. And I tend to have a freak out moment around the 12, 13 hour mark, which I think some of the folks that follow me on social noticed. My wife reminded me that I, she definitely noticed, but around that mark, you're looking at the clock and you're thinking, all right, I've had my fun. It's been a nice long flight. I enjoyed the service. Obviously it was certainly less of an imposition for myself being in business class. I think I'd feel differently if I was in premium economy or say the Qantas or Qatar routes that have true economy. So, you know, I'm no hero in this by any stretch. I did it the best way you could do it. And certainly I think that definitely presents a bias here, but kind of around that 12, 13 hour mark. And I found this true even when I'm in economy on these long direct and nonstops. I have this, oh my gosh, there's still four, five hours left in the flight. What what the heck did I get myself into? This is this is long. And that maybe lasts for an hour or so and you get antsy and then you kind of, I settle in and the rest of the flight goes by pretty easy. And you kind of, I don't know, time just stops being a thing. And I found that to be true earlier on the delivery flight for the 787-10, which was a direct flight that we couldn't get off between Charleston, Osaka, and Singapore. And that was 25 hours on that airplane without getting off. And after a certain point, it kind of feels like you just live there now. It's not the end of the world to add on extra hours. And I'm sure at some point I'd eventually find that new limit of I'm done. Get me the heck off this thing. So at one point you're just saying, okay, this is my life. I live here now. Yeah, kind of. I'd certainly say that there's when I got off the aircraft, uh, we met, you know, on baggage claim and I, I didn't feel terrible at all. And I hadn't really slept on the flight, maybe three hours total of the 17 and a half we were on board which is certainly less than I think Singapore would have intended on a normal flight for you to have. But the humidity and, and the tech the tech in the A350, I think, is one of the biggest things. The same in the Dreamliner, the 787. It's, it's, an, it's an unsung hero in this. Those composite materials that they make that aircraft out of, they lower that altitude in the cabin pressure, which results in a higher humidity. I really do think that makes an enormous difference. I didn't feel parched. My nose didn't feel dry. Uh, you didn't get the, I know a couple passengers on board said they tend to get, you know, dry noses. It leads to bloody noses. I don't think that's terribly unique among passengers spending a lot of time in an aircraft. None of them had that. That That's unique to the, the composite technology that allows that higher humidity rate in A350s and 787s. And I think if I'd done a comparative amount of time and say a 200 LR like Qatar's is, or in or in a triple seven three hundred or an A three eighty, I think you'd be in a lot more world of hurt for that long of time, and that really did make a noticeable difference. And I, you know, my hats off to Air, the folks at Airbus and Boeing who who made that technology possible because I, I think that's the difference that what makes it bearable. You don't end the flight in a massive headache. You don't end the flight dry as a desert. You feel pretty okay. I really didn't mind. Right. And all of this is stuff that did not exist when they operated this last uh, in what was it, 2013-2014 with the A34500. It was standard cabin pressure, standard humidity and and people still managed, but I'm sure they're more than happy now to have these new advances. Absolutely. I think it's one of those differences that you don't appreciate unless you've done both. Yeah. And I've, I've done 17 plus hour, 20 plus hour direct flights in 
triple sevens and felt like hell at the end of it. It's real. It's something you can't physically see, but affects you, I guess, subconsciously. The first time I had ever flown a 787, it was a rather long flight. It was San Jose, California to Tokyo. And then we connected on a 767 from Tokyo to Hong Kong. On that 76, I felt like I was going to die just because of how much more dry and parched I felt. It was disgusting after comparatively being on a 787. So it's not something you see or think about, but when when it's not there, you you notice it immediately. Absolutely. And that, that's so much of the new tech that you see in the Dreamliners and A350s are those little differences that you you can't that most passengers won't be able to articulate but are there nonetheless and make a meaningful difference when you stretch that out over these long haul and ultra long haul flights and out of my way for either aircraft versus some of the more traditional long haul airplanes that are airplanes that are available today so speaking of traditional the A3 A380 you flew back to New York to JFK not Newark much better airport good choice mm. you flew the long way via Frankfurt so there was one stop it wasn't the nonstop how was that compared to the nonstop well again i think that it's a little tough to say cuz i flew in business class and obviously singapore's business class borders on opulence they didn't pay me to say that. I They just they genuinely have a good product. I think most folks in the industry recognize that, though I was a guest of the airline. But uh, certainly that's very different. The A380 has economy class the whole way. I have done economy in uh, Singapore A380, LA, Narita, Singapore, and felt pretty trashed at the end of it. This was obviously a little bit better. I slept in a you know, a proper bed, got 10 hours of sleep on the first leg, and then was awake for the next 25, and then slept for 13. But when I got home, it was tolerable. It was fine. I liked the opportunity to get off in Frankfurt. The next eight hours, I binged watch a couple of HBO shows. They were thoroughly enjoyable. Barry, highly recommended if you like dark humor dramedies. Wonderful. Bill Hader reinvents himself. Whatever. I'm not plugging it. I'm just saying I liked it. But it was perfectly fine. It had all the Singapore charm and service that I would expect. It had the product that I would expect. Would I want to do that in economy, which I think is to tell her here? I've done it before. I'm not sure I go out of my way to do it again. Certainly not to Seattle. It would make way more sense to go through Singapore. But if we're talking about the New or sorry, San Francisco. But if we're talking about the New York market specifically, I don't know why you wouldn't go nonstop if the price was all the same. Well, and right now the price isn't all the same. It's it's basically cheaper to take the nonstop. Yeah, from what I've seen, they have definitely looking at the pricing right now. Yeah, they definitely seem to be trying to book the to boost, bolster the bookings on the nonstop, and I don't know why you wouldn't do that if it were all the same. Maybe if you're doing economy. So let, let's take a step back and, and open this up to a wider discussion of. Will this flight? Is this flight a novelty flight? Is it something that Singapore is doing because it did at one point and now it's doing it again because it can? Or is this something that, you know, other airlines are going to see Singapore, if they're successful with this particular route, other airlines are going to go, maybe the A350 ULR is for me and I can launch, you know, another 18, 19 hour route or something like that? Sure. I think the answer is this, this is, in fact, the new era, at least on the non-trunk routes for a while. And the trunk routes are obviously generally well-established. 
and, I, and those will be just what they are. But at the moment, Singapore is the only ULR operator. It, it is capable of up to two hours beyond what it would have done in Newark, Singapore. But most of the, the top routes, like I said at the moment, are all twin-engine aircraft and increasingly will be connecting cities that haven't been connected before. You have Manila, New York coming online, which previously stopped in Vancouver. You'll have that coming online, I think, in 10 days, and that's going to pull into third or fourth place, which will knock uh, Singapore's relaunch, uh, LA, Singapore, to fourth or fifth place, which was previously done by United but with a 787, but they're going to drop it and Singapore will own it. I think that the statistics have shown over time that business travelers appreciate frequency more than they do anything else. And this certainly allows for A, options that weren't previously available in frequencies at an economic factor that wasn't previously possible. So I don't think that this is a one-off. I think for cities that have already demonstrated the demand but were previously requiring a stop, why would you do that anymore? I don't really see the reason. So I don't think this is a one-off. I And certainly prior to that, when Singapore operated the route from 2004 to 13, somewhere in that range, I think at some point it was clear that it was operated as a novelty. They were losing hand over foot. They tried repeated regenerations of configurations in the A345, and they were still losing money. Rising oil prices, bad economy, blah, blah, blah. They canceled the route. But the A350 makes those economics possible in a way that prior iterations of other aircraft just couldn't do. And... I think you're going to see a lot of these pop up. I don't even think that this route was likely to last more than a year or two unless oil goes through the roof. And even then, this aircraft was built specifically to weather that kind of increase in oil prices to make this more sustainable. So I don't think we're looking at a one-off. I think we're likely looking at the new future, in my opinion, that you will see it increase in these city pair connections. Certainly Qantas has been after Project Sunrise is after that Sydney, London nonstop that it's been after since what? Uh, the, the supersonic era, the short-lived supersonic era in the 60s when they thought everything would be supersonic. That didn't last. But I don't think that there'll be a lot more of them. I think there's a limited number of city pairs that can make that economically work. But you can think of these trunk routes that will develop between these economic powerhouses, say Sydney, London, Singapore to D.C. or Singapore to New York that previously just, just weren't economically feasible, finally have the technology to make that doable, even in not super friendly climate with crude jet prices. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for how much quicker a nonstop is. Like I'm looking mm -hmm. at uh, Perth to London is Qantas on their 787, 17 hours, 25 minutes. The next shortest option is via Dubai, which is 21 hours, 20 minutes. So it's four hours longer going through Dubai. So it's a significant time savings if you're okay with being on board in economy on the 787 for 17, 18 hours. Singapore is a little unique in that it does not have economy, but a lot of these other airlines operating these ultra-long-haul flights, to them, it's just, just another flight, I guess, while Singapore treats it as a, it's a whole other thing. Which is, a, I think, it was a reflection of the fact that they view themselves as a top-tier premium airline. Not necessarily the others do. I don't 
know whether or not that will last long term and they'll be forced to do some of the cabin reconfigurations that they've done in the past and introduce a small economy cabin as possible but uh just as a comparison the door-to-door not that again anyone would go from seattle to singapore via new york that's just dumb but which i guess makes me dumb but anyway Really, just just don't do it. If you're thinking about thinking, this is going to be great, I'm going to go through Seattle or some West Coast city through Singapore via New York. No, don't, just don't. But anyway, Seattle, Singapore via Newark with SQ21 was 30 hours door-to-door. The return was 38. And let me tell you, it's not terrible getting to New York in either direction. It's, it's, it, to some degree, it felt like a wash to me. I could have done either. It depends on your mood. It depends on your class of service. Do you, do you like having that break to get up and walk around in a real place where you can go more than, what, 300 feet in either direction? I could potentially see that as a wash, depending on your preference. Where it really catches up is if you're making those onward connections past that. And now you're doing another five-hour flight, say, you know, down to South America or Latin America or across doing a transcon to the western uh, coast of the U.S. Or just taking that connecting flight up to Syracuse that's been delayed five hours. For example, not that that ever happens often because it totally does, but that's where it really starts catching up and where you really kind of wish you had saved those eight hours in just getting there and getting it over with. Right. I'm still struggling personally to get excited about this flight. When Singapore operated the A34500, it was unique. It was really set apart from all the other long-haul flights. But now, it isn't. There there are so many other ultra, ultra long-haul flights that I see this one and I'm just like, eh, it's a long flight, doesn't have economy, it's cool, but it's not that long compared to the next nearest flights. And it's great that people are super excited about it, but how much of this is nostalgia versus realism? Yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely in a class of its own when it was first launched uh, back in, again, 2008, three, whatever the year was. There was no one even competing with it, but now both the Qantas flight and the Qatar flight are within 500 miles of it. You can't even break the top 10 without being over 16 hours, if I'm remembering correctly. And please write letters if I'm wrong. But <laughs> I might be a little off. But the top five are at least seventeen hours, so we'll, right. we'll do that because I know for sure. Yeah, that I can guarantee as well. You can't even break the top five without being seventeen plus. And when Singapore even retired it, there was nothing even competing. I, th- I think the next closest was a couple hours shy of that. And again, I think that demonstrates airlines wouldn't be running these ultra long haul ultra long haul routes if they weren't at least breaking even over time. And I think Singapore might do it for the prestige. I'm not convinced that Qantas and other airlines would. They might run like a Project Sunrise route just for the hell of it, but I don't think most airlines are going to do that. It requires four airplanes to do it successfully. That's not a small commitment of metal. That's a lot of money and a lot of staff and a lot of fuel going in in both directions at all times to make routes like these worth worth doing. So I'd be hard pressed to think that in the economies that the way they are, that airlines are going to do those routes if, if they're not at least returning a break-even value. Jeremy, I think that we should leave it there and let you get back to sleep or at least get a little more sleep. But I want to thank you very much for, first of all, doing all of that. 
so that you could report back to us. And also in our conversation tonight, I'm not sure if you realize, but you volunteered to also fly the Qatar and the the Emirates ones just to figure out what it was like in a 777LR and an A380. So thanks for volunteering for that. And we'll have you back in a future episode after you've flown those. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait for you guys to proffer the bill. <laughs> Well, in that case, it'll be a few episodes. Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, as always, thank you so much for joining us. We will talk to you in the future, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me on. Welcome back. And Jason, that's the last time we'll ever talk about it. Okay, good. I promise. That's good. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, actually, I just saw, I think it was today or yesterday from a tweet from John Walton that he had heard from a passenger on the Qantas flight from Perth to London or the other way around that the in-flight entertainment system was not working. And that's cruel and inhuman to make any passenger uh, <laughs> sit on an aircraft that long without entertainment. I think they should cancel that flight. Ouch. That's rough. Yeah, that's brutal. But it's gonna, it's bound to happen on these super duper long flights that uh, sometimes the system's just not going to work. And man, that's got to suck. Ladies and gentlemen, we won't have anything. Go buy a book. Ouch. Go buy several Maybe. books. <laughs> Go buy several book- puppet shows, maybe? I don't know. Oh, that'd that, be cool. Like, what do you do? I don't know. You stare at the seat in front of you for 18 hours. And- the flight crew will be reenacting a play of your choice. Oh, Hamilton. See, now that that would be something. Yeah. I would actually maybe not pay for that. Nope. But not be <laughs> mad if that happened. Let's use the bottom third of the show to quickly move through some interesting things that happened in the past week that might not merit an entire discussion but are worth mentioning for one reason or another. UPS Airlines scared the pants off of some people in Los Angeles about a month ago when they started writing in that a big jet was being followed by what looked like a fighter jet, which we all believed to be a photo flight, and it turns out that it was. And they published the -the behind-the-scenes footage from the air-to-air flights with Wolf Air. It's awesome. It's in the show notes. You should definitely go watch. Uh, What Ian said. The last Allegiant MD-80 flight is scheduled, and Jason will be on it. He Uh, says he's going to fly one Allegiant MD-80 a day until they're gone. That's what you said, right? I think you may be getting that wrong. But it is interesting. They're doing a a very large drawdown. The 26th, they have 32 flights, all based out of Orlando, Sanford, from all over the the Northeast and and Midwest, from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, all the way west to uh, Kansas City. Then they're doing nothing on the 27th. And then the last flight on the 28th is actually, what is it, Las Vegas to, what is FAT? Sacramento, right? Is it? Yeah, whatever it is. It's uh, Vegas to whatever FAT is and back to Vegas because that was apparently their their first route. Fat airport. Fresno. Fresno. So close. So close. Fresno. Yeah, Sacramento (laughs) didn't sound right. But uh, yes, Las Vegas, Fresno, back to Vegas on the 28th will be the – of November, November 28th, will be the last Allegiant MD-80 flight as of now. Well, there you go. Yep. Fresno and Sacramento are close. Yeah. On you know, a cosmic scale. And for those wondering, no, they're not drawing down their fleet. They are slowly replacing the MD-80s with A320s, either new or used. Yes, both. Oh, yep. 
a flight you will actually, well, a group of flights you will actually be on the first Delta A220 scheduled for this coming January, and you will be on one of the first flights. One of the first flights. The first first flight is uh, LaGuardia to Boston at 6 a.m., which I have no interest in being on, and mainly because it's 6 a.m., but also because that flight is just too short to really get uh, a solid feel for the aircraft. So I'm flying down to DFW at 7.45 with a bunch of other people, apparently, in paid first class and back up in economy because I want to get a feel for both cabins and it was cheap enough to do that, thankfully, mainly because I booked the flight the day before thinking that would be the correct flight and I got right. And the price is now way higher. So I'm pretty happy with myself on that one. I am proud of you, Jason. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to hearing what that's all about. Yeah, that'll be fun. You should join. Oh, you can't. That's right. Sad. No, I can't. Sad. I have other obligations that day. Too bad. What I'll be doing that day is ordering a bunch of A330 800s. You'll be one of like two to do that. Because Kuwait ordered eight A330 800s. The smaller version of the A330neo. So, Kuwait's now the, I think, second customer of that? Well, Hawaiian dropped, but there's another African airline right, that recently the, the signed up. Yeah, existing customer. I forget who it is. It's uh, – who is it? But the Kuwait also dropped some A350 orders in the process. As one does. As one does. So, I'm sure somebody will pick those up. Wait, I need to know who ordered it. I know it was some <laughs> – oh, man. I'm not going to get it. It's okay. Oh, well. We'll come back to it in the next episode. Or if you know, you can email us, podcast at fr24.com, in case Jason gets bored, wanders off, and doesn't end up looking it up by himself, Hmm. which is entirely possible. It's very likely. All right. I'm going to let you go get packed, do some laundry, and enjoy South Africa. And we will talk about that possibly on the next episode if we can get a hold of you uh, enough to record. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. If you're not too busy. Or we'll talk about it in the episode thereafter and we might have a guest. uh, I feel like it might even be Jeremy. No, he's banned from the podcast for at least a couple episodes. Oh, he's in timeout. Okay. Yeah, we're we're putting him in Avtalk timeout. So, we're already revoking his platinum status. No, we're just going to send him somewhere nicer. Oh, okay. We'll do that. This has been episode 43 of Avtalk. If you've enjoyed it, or even if you haven't, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. If you have not subscribed, we suggest you do so. You get the podcast a lot faster because it doesn't take the podcast poll requests very long to find the episode and then so that you can download it. It goes directly to you as soon as we publish it so that you get to listen to it that much faster. So you can either go to our website, uh, the blog, and subscribe there. And that's a wonderful way to get this podcast just that much faster when it comes out. Okay, then. Uganda is the other airline for the A330-800. There you go. I knew we'd get it. And on that note, I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.